This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Max. Hey, Joris. How you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm chilling in the south of France at the moment, so I'm really enjoying Provence. I'm in a very, very good mood. How are you? I'm good. I'm enjoying the last days of summer in New York City. Okay. <laughs> the, I Who do we like... have on the 3D pod today? <laughs> well, summer in New York it can be really nice, right? It is. It can be. It's Actually, it's a weird thing where there are a lot less people in New York City during the summer. Yeah. So uh, when you live in New York City, you're like, yeah, we can go almost anywhere. It's like yeah, exactly. Right. All the reservations, no <laughs> exactly. lines. Exactly. All the reservations, no lines. But yeah, so that's oh, fun. Perfect. perfect. So who do we have on the 3D pod today? Oh, we've got Douglas Crone on the 3D pod, and Douglas has had a well, really, really interesting time in AM. I'd say he's done lots of other stuff besides, but. Um, if you know Douglas, it's two very different things that he did, which are actually kind of very similar, I guess, uh, but very unexpectedly, the things that unexpectedly come from the same person. One is that he's, uh, you know, one of the founders behind uh, Dynamism. Dynamism is a leading kind of um, industrial slash uh, desktop at one point a reseller company uh, in, the, in the States. Uh, but he also founded Brulee Japan, and Brulee is, is kind of the, enterprise partner for 3d printing in japan and that's that's a market we don't know a lot about and we haven't talked about a lot and it's finally seeming to wake up by the way to the world of additive uh and and again the douglas is a mr 3d printing in japan and uh, i've referred a bunch of people to him because of that and uh, uh so that's why another reason why he's a very really exciting guy to talk to and uh, he's also doing brulee korea and he had a bunch of other different experiences but uh yeah we'll talk about that, that with him so welcome to the show uh douglas thanks so much it's great to be on uh, so, so first off, like, how did you get started with 3D printing, first of all? We started in around 2010 with MakerBot. And um, it was just in the era when a lot of the patents were expiring, the early Stratasys and 3D Systems patents were expiring. There was a lot of innovation in the space, excitement in the space. I think if you were in that space, you remember there was a, kind of led to a bubble around 2013 and 14. But we started with uh, some of the early innovators in that space, MakerBot, Formlabs, Ultimaker, um, they were all doing interesting things. Was that a, a timing thing? I mean, did you choose, because like all these three companies have done, well, to varying degrees, well, uh, and did you choose those deliberately? Did you think they were the only ones to have success or did you just get lucky with them? What do you, what do you think of these partners? I, w- I would like to say that we were really smart, but um, actually we, in, in those days, we spoke with lots of partners and we worked with various companies, but those were the companies that were run by probably the savviest entrepreneurs and especially the entrepreneurs who were, the, and the CEOs who were running those companies who had long-term vision, focus on quality and growth and technology. They did really well. Um, so we've, we've stuck with them. Okay, cool. And then, and what was it like running Dynamism? Then the early days for Dynamism was like 2016-ish or something like that, right? So what was it like running them back then? Oh, in the very early days, we were dramatically understaffed. Everybody had to wear lots of hats. Um, Everybody was in every department. And uh, we just kind of scrambled to keep up, especially as 3D printing had explosive growth around 2010, 11, 12. And we were kind of learning on the fly. So those were chaotic and uh, exhilarating days. And since then, of course, what we've seen is a focus much more on the enterprise. You guys were kind of early on 
kind of focusing on the enterprise, did you think that was the most sustainable or did we just have the most margins or be the most long-term thing or? It turned out that a lot of our customers were enterprise customers from the beginning. We were an enterprise-focused company. We sold to lots of big institutions and educational institutions and um, tech enterprise. And they came to us asking for more sophisticated solutions. And around that time, as they gained more competence with added manufacturing, there started to be more innovation from entrepreneurs in the industrial 3D printing startup space. I think that what happened was, and you would see this in technology quite often, there's a kind of democratization of technology and the competency around it. So in the first wave of 3D printing in 2010 and 11, lots of engineers who wouldn't have had access to a Stratasys or a 3D printer machine, because those machines would only be purchased for very application-specific reasons because they're expensive to own and operate. Lots of engineers had exposure to 3D printing and the tools around 3D printing and how to use it. And they gained competency for more sophisticated industrial applications. So it was really our customers, our early customers asking us for more sophisticated tools. At the same time, the industry started to produce more sophisticated tools. What do you credit with your success at Dynamism specifically? I mean, what made that company successful in staying? Is it just you know, doing whatever the customer wants, serving the customer and stuff like that? or? It really is not a magic formula. We put a, a huge emphasis on customer service and customer experience, on having lifetime relationships with the customers. So, and as the technology evolves, relying on that the customers will continue to work with us because we're delivering great service. On the other side, we try to work with the technology leaders so we have the best products to offer. And uh, our growth has come as our customers have grown. Either their organizational size has grown or their utilization of added manufacturing has grown, or both. I think it's a crucial thing. I, I saw a lot of people in the beginning, in the beginning days, focus on trying to sell machines. They really focus on machines, machines. And I think it's really interesting. If the, if you if your KPI, your metric, the thing you judge yourself by is this relationship, then of course, yeah, in the retrospect, you would have done a lot better, of course, because there's one company could buy a hundred printers, or one company could buy many more sophisticated systems, or buy a lot more material than just random people, right? Yeah, I think that early focus on machines is, of course, it's tempting because you can could move boxes through very quickly, but I don't think that's sustainable for growth because um, for one thing, as we see in all technology, the same functionality continues to become cheaper and cheaper and more accessible. And if you're trying to run a business, you're, you'll have a lot of margin compression there you really have to figure out how to deliver more value to customers and have a long-term relationship with the customers. Um, so that's, that's what we did. And you could also see in, from the early 3d printing era, the, the companies, whether they're manufacturers or resellers that just focused on short-term goals, they're not really with us today. Yeah, I think so. There's a real shakeout of these guys and, and, and a real shakeout of those guys. And it could be because of this. It could be for, you know, it could be because at one point you could just show up and say, I want to be a reseller. And some people are just like, yeah, you buy two systems, you're a reseller. So, you know, there's a lot of, there wasn't a real focus on quality except for certain companies like, uh, you know, Foreign Labs and, and, and Ultimaker, for example, were really very focused on getting the right resellers. And I think that's also kind of apparent as well. You saw a lot of companies that maybe had a lot of resellers that weren't really moving boxes, even though that's what they wanted to do. Uh, because they just weren't, you know, they just somehow weren't capable. I don't think I, I wouldn't know how to get started as a reseller either. I wouldn't know that business, you know? 
I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it starts from a 3D printer manufacturer. At that time, 3D printing is very hot. The technology is open. Really, anybody could become a 3D printing manufacturer, a 3D printer manufacturer. And then it's very tempting to sign up lots of resellers because, okay, resellers buy inventory and you you could achieve a lot of short-term sales. But like most channel businesses, if you don't have the right partners who are representing and servicing the products well, that reflects badly on your brand. And especially 3D printing and 3D printers in those days particularly required a lot of service. So brands or makers who acquired lots of resellers that didn't have the infrastructure to provide great service, those customers had a poor experience and that reflected on the brand too. Yeah, totally, totally. And and what do you think? And Okay, so besides this mechanism, whatever we want to call it, we've seen kind of a shakeout in resellers. Also distributors and stuff go bust lately. You know, is it just the ones focusing on professional and being professional focus on the relationship? Is that it? Or is there even more to being a reseller nowadays? Do you, do you have to have more on your uh, in your arsenal? When we think about additive, we think about being more than a reseller. So we do consultative services. We try to help enterprises understand where they might be able to achieve synergies or work faster or work cheaper or work more efficiently with additive. And then within that, we offer services like 3D printed parts if they're not ready to purchase machines. We offer machines if they want machines. So we try to offer a one-stop solution for additive needs. We're not the only folks who do that, That's, but that's kind of where the industry is going. That's it just just being a reseller and just moving um, merchandise is not a is not a great growth business. Are you still focused on the FDM side of it or or whatever we're calling it now? FFM, FF, FFA. No, um, <laughs> that's we really started. I think the drivers of our growth early on were Ultimaker and Formlabs. Of course, that's covering two two kinds of technology, but now we have almost all you know from metal powder bed to um, LCLA, LCD, FFF, the whole range of technologies. The whole whole thing, right. As long as we see that it's going to, as long as we see a product or technology that can offer value to customers um, that's not currently in our portfolio, that's what we're looking for. We, We don't want Me Too products and we don't even really want second best products. We want to... You know, our goal is to look at each technology platform and think about what is the best performing product in this that we could offer to the customer. I am curious yeah. that over the years, as you've seen new printers come and go and, and new technology also come and go, are there any that, that stick out to you that have um, as true winners? And on the counterpoint, are there any that stick out? as true losers and we're glad that that tech is not there not necessarily the company but you know, just the technology i don't want to despair yeah anymore. i mean I, I i'm not gonna name names but <laughs> there are certainly companies that represent from start to finish that they're short-term focused and almost all of those companies don't do well or don't survive and uh they take lots of short-term decisions as far as it goes for the technology platform I think the biggest challenge is there there are a lot of ways to do additive besides the probably probably big five or seven technologies that everybody knows. And there are a lot of inventive entrepreneurs out there um, who've invented lots of different ways to, you know, assemble materials. 
but sometimes it doesn't really offer value other than it's different or it, the value that it offers is so niche that it's, it's difficult for them to scale. Well, <laughs> the tech has to come along. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, exactly. But, but I, think, I think this niche thing is really, this is, there's a lot of people that like they parrot kind of like what they think that you should parrot. I love this idea of like you being able to tell who's short term focus because you can, right? But the things they say, the things they do, and then how they, they do, but, uh, but also how they, they repeat certain things, like this, how they deliver value and all this. It's kind of some people are just doing this paint by numbers kind of companies. And some people just actually like maybe they have a good company, but they're not doing a good job. I remember before 3D printing, I used to all this stuff and we were working for this company that essentially had a better PowerPoint. It was mm-hmm. like PowerPoint, but like way better than PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it costs like money. And then they were like, and we were trying to help them with that. And it was just like, yeah, but like no one's going to pay for better PowerPoints. Right. <laughs> and that was kind of like the, the PowerPoint thing. at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so it was like, we have to come up with some kind of technological revolution thing or just some kind of completely crazy marketing thing. But otherwise, just no one's going to pay for better PowerPoint it was at the end of the day. And then the product, if you looked at it, was really, really good because it was better than PowerPoint. You know? <laughs> but, but sometimes that's just not enough, you know? And you do see that in technology. For, for many years, whether you think about beta versus um, VHS and going through the decades, it's not always the case that the purely best technology wins. Having the best technology is a very important component of a larger picture that includes uh, the ecosystem, what other partners are involved, you know, uh, who, who's selling it and supporting it. And so we do see, you see this in 3D printing and you see this in other technology as well. You can sometimes find entrepreneurs who have in fact invented a better mousetrap and therefore think that the world will beat a path to their door, like the better PowerPoint. But it doesn't work that way. PowerPoint is part of a a platform like a juggernaut, Office and Microsoft, right, that you've got to be wildly better, right? Are you suggesting that this company, Microsoft, that you speak of with their billions of dollars of advertising could somehow <laughs> clamp the market? <laughs> uh, there's a great quote from a Seinfeld where they're pitching an idea for a show about nothing. And the NBC executive says, well, why am I watching it? And George says, because it's on TV. And sometimes if you're a juggernaut, you know, you can, if you're selling lots of office and Excel, people are not going to go somewhere else for their presentation. No. Yeah. Cause it's considered part of a large, yes. but yes. And I totally get what you're saying. And I've, I have likewise seen lots of, I think we've all seen lots of, that's a neat technology, but what do you do with it? Like kind yeah. of feel as well as like, that is a better solution, but I'm already entrenched in what I've already set up here and spent tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars setting up a system. So I'm not tearing it down just to implement this new system. That's 2% better. Correct. And we think about, that's right. We think about form labs or ultimakers um, being really successful coming out of that era. One thing that you would see with them today is a super robust platform ecosystem that goes around those products. It's because the technology is not dramatically different than it was, but a lot of the things it's improved and the machines are improved and reliability and accuracy, repeatability have all been improved, but also perhaps more importantly, the materials, there are so many more materials that do so many more things. And again, the support 
and whether that's from the maker or from the partners, the whole ownership experience and the, the capability so that it's not possible today for a startup FDM maker or a startup uh, SLA maker to match those offerings where it would have been possible 10 years ago to substantially match their offerings. Does that make sense? Yeah, I totally. I think, yeah. I think, but having having worked, I worked at both like for a while. Me, Formlabs, much longer at Ultimaker, right? So, and I think at both of those companies it was a culture that really was a thing. And and you know, to do with vision, it wasn't only that Max had this whole vision of this holistic experience, which no one really had at the time. Uh, but also, he's a very, very charismatic guy, and he can do this, and he's, he's surrounded by smart people. So those are all enabling things. But the key thing to me was that they had a lot of cultural pressure to implement this total vision and to make that experience well. And at Ultimaker, they started doing these workshops at their houses, essentially, and having a laser cutter in their kitchen. And if people would, would not be able to send the printer, assemble the printer, they would come back to them, and then in the workshop, they would solve it. So Ultimaker grew up around this culture of helping people fix their printer. So that meant that they had a really great customer service, and they really cared about that experience to you know, have that faultless experience. So I think these two, this culture is also this ultimate enabler. And I think I saw it very close up by both these companies. Both these companies were very, very special. Uh, and you really knew they were going to, you really felt like you were like energized working there. You're like, oh my God, this place is really, really very special. I totally agree with you. And having worked with both those companies for a long time, I think that for the three co-founders of Ultimaker, um, as well as with Max and Natan and the founders at Formlabs, um, of course, everyone's in business to make money. But that's not driving their decisions on a day-to-day business, on a day-to-day on a day-to-day basis. They're driven by a vision for what they're trying to achieve, and over a five-year period or a ten-year period, they end up achieving much more than somebody that's just thinking about six months or a year. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think I think it's like long-term greed or like strategically greed. Yes, yeah, strategically <laughs> applied greed. Yes. Uh, and, a, and a big VC to push you to do that. Uh, oh yeah, maybe, maybe. But but, not, but the financing was different at both companies, huh? Like, right. Formums had external money from the very very beginning, and and, and Ultimate was very bootstrapped until kind of the they were already quite a big company when they were um, uh, uh, when they took on loans first off, and then later on investment. But that was more P and E money, so it's very very different. I think there was a drive there, and they, they also and I think we we also. We don't talk about this enough, but if you are like at one point, if you're in 2009, if you wanted to work in 3D printing 2010, 11, or whatever, you're going to work, you're going to gravitate towards MakerBall because that was the coolest thing in the world, you know? If you would have been there in 2008 or 9, you would have done some rep rap open source stuff. If you would have joined in 2011, I think you would have gone to Ultimaker. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's also when and if you were in MIT and you wanted to go to 3D printing, well, of course you're going to like go to talk to Max and you're going to want to be a part of what he's doing. So it's also, you know, I remember I was desperately trying to get a 3D printing job and there was a company called Kmo, which is still the worst name of a company I've ever heard. That was later bought by 3D Systems. Uh, and that was the only uh, real significant thing in the Netherlands. And we have materialized in Leuven in Belgium. And then finally, the Philips started with Shapeways, or would later become Shapeways. And that's where I managed to get a job. But if, if like, I don't know, if somebody else would have shopped near me, or if I would have been able to get a job there, I would have been able to get a job there, you know? But I wasn't able to, 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 to get a job at Stratasys because there was sort of some Dutch guy that didn't know, you know? So it was just, it's also like where, you know, this gravitational pull this company exerts uh over the world at the time at that particular moment in time i think that's right and ultimaker was as you say i I think that 
money, external money didn't come until 2017 or 18, something around that time. And they were so methodical about quality. I mean, that's one reason that they initially fell behind in the U.S. market is they didn't really get to the U.S. aggressively because they didn't feel that they could control the experience well enough. It, I mean, they, they really moved with customer experience in the center of what they thought about all the time, but it paid off in the long run. Yeah, I think there's a lot of client choices that were really weird. Like for example, they had hundreds or hundreds of people that wanted to be the reseller, right? And they didn't they had a backlog and they didn't have people to get through that and evaluate them. And so they didn't have these resellers. And this was just like money laying around essentially, right? And other companies were literally doing what I said before. Buy two printers, you're a reseller, or buy five of our printer and you're a reseller. And and these guys were just like, No, no, it's better for us to leave money on the table. And and then and, and you could have easily said buy five systems and you would have sold five systems easily hundreds of people right? right and they're just like no they cared so much to you know it's one thing to say that you care about the environment or people or customers but there's other thing to like month after month just leave money you know leave yeah. free money lying around I think yeah. that really you know that means that you value actually not making money and you value that other thing more I think that's really really very very important yeah and it's and it's also in retrospect and where they are today it's easy to say. Uh, hey, good job, don't sign up resellers. But think about a bootstrapped, self-funded startup that's not very big, that's operating out of a farmhouse in the Netherlands, um, for, to, for them to make the decision to leave money on the table month after month for a couple of years until they felt like they could do it. That's That takes incredible discipline and focus. So they should be credited. Yeah, totally, totally. Fair enough. Totally. Mm-hmm. But uh, so tell us, like, so Dynamism is great, doing really well, and then all of a sudden there's this brulee thing in Japan, which you're also doing. How does that work out? How do you end up doing kind of a, 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 a different type of business in Japan? I happened to be living in Japan around that era, just before 2010, and started a Japanese company to bring U.S. technology to Japan. And as the 3D printing that we were doing at Dynamism became excel- accelerated and became so popular, we ended up bringing a lot of the 3D printing brands to Japan. So um, Brulee introduced to Japan brands like Formlabs, Ultimaker, MakerBot, um, Nexa 3D, uh, and, and several others. And so that allowed, we were just in a way in the right place at the right time because you know, as you would remember from that era, 3D printing is in in the news every day or almost every, somewhere every day. And um, if you were in business in 2010 or 11 or 12 in 3D printing, the amount of free advertising and publicity that you may receive is tremendous, was tremendous, huge. Um, and so Brulee became really famous and really well known in Japan as a additive leader. And we've grown that business to be a, a really significant player in industrial 3D printing in Japan. We also operate printing as a service. We have a collaboration and a showroom with um, Tokyo University, which is uh, sort of called the Harvard of Japan. Although some there's no peer, I think you know there are other schools in the U.S. that might take exception to that. But in Japan, I think everyone accepts Tokyo as, uh, as the leading university. And we have a 3D print learning center, the 3D printing learning center at Tokyo University at their engineering facility in their main campus. So we also serve lots of the, we serve the largest Japanese um, manufacturing and technology enterprises that you may know of, also helping them adapt 
uh, additive for their processes, innovation and manufacturing. You know, one weird thing was it, it took corporate Japan like a really okay so for, for a really long time to get on board with 3D printing compared to everyone else, and and one of the weird things is that for example, the famously I think in 2000 when was it 2004 Sony had an SLA business right <laughs> they made big stereolithography machines they sold. <laughs> I think two to four of them, something like that, with the business. Then, you know, a couple of years later, they must have been a bit peeved when all hell broke loose, of course, like, like four or five years later. Um, and subsequently, it took like corporate Japan, like the big, big manufacturers, and the company has this amazing manufacturing industry. It took them a huge amount of time to get, to get on board compared to other things. My th- pet theory has always been that in Holland, we don't really make things compared to other countries around us. Belgium and Germany make a ton of stuff. We don't really, we do a lot of process and arbitrage and stuff, you know? So in Holland, we didn't know how hard it is to make things. And we're just happy that we had a little machine on our desk that spit out something. So, so everybody was just super content. And then we, and we just got, got on with it, you know? And meanwhile, in Japan, they were looking at these machines like, ah, this is terrible. This doesn't have the tolerance. <laughs> this isn't good enough. Is it really, is it that simple or is it, you know, because it did take them a really long time, right? I think that a lot of that goes to Japanese corporate culture, um, which is tremendously risk averse. So if you work in a big Japanese manufacturing company and you follow the established processes, uh, you will not run into problems in your career. If you decide to take risks and upset the apple cart, uh, it's an asymmetrical bet because if you're successful, you'll receive a pat on the back. However, you will not be promoted above somebody who's more senior than you anyway. And if you're not successful, it's it's a lot of shame. And so, and uh, it kind of you may stymie your career may be stymied at the level that you're at. That people in Japan also generally won't be fired, but their career advancement may stop. And so the way it's set up is not to drive, you know, it's not to incentivize incentivize people to try new technologies. 3D printing is a very big departure from the way corporate Japan has done things. So I think they want to be late in the game. They want to see how it's unfolded. And I also think the post-pandemic era and all the stuff around supply chain risk and geopolitical risk which is really present for if you live in Japan, has also pushed their hand into additive a little faster. But you think because yeah. they're so uh, risk adverse, like they don't really believe in the whole try, fail, try again mentality that had kind of 3D printing. No, that's no, that's definitely true. And that you see that across even if you think about tech startups and um Okay, you don't see many global tech startups that came from Japan. There are some, but there aren't as many as you would think based on the size of the economy. And that has to do a little bit with there's not a VC culture. There's not an entrepreneurial culture of try and fail. In many cases, if you took money from a VC and failed, there's not another VC who's going to invest in your next venture. You could have a really difficult time with that. And obviously, 3D printing, you know, both as an industry and as a in practical application, especially in the early days, requires a lot of try and fail. And that just doesn't fit. They would, in Japan, they'd rather pay more uh, to get a better product and they'd rather be later and pay more to get a product that has more fit and finish and reliability. Right. They don't want to go through all that needless mucking about. 
The, the, the totally crazy thing for me is, if we look at post-war Japan, which is in a terrible state, and then we look at all of these, that was also a time when people had to, I guess. And if you look at all the entrepreneurial stories from back then, they're insane. It's like a guy uh, goes back to a store, the store gets burnt down, he has to sell the zipper inventory, he can't make the zipper, he risks everything to import a zipper machine, and that's what came YKK. You know, that's like the story with insane risks, right, mm-hmm. that, that led to that company. The, the story of Psycho and all these, all these giant companies, or a lot of them were started in that era or were restarted, essentially. And if you read about those stories, they're amazingly thrilly, like, guy has nothing risk it all, loses it all, loses it all again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so, so these big empires were built on these people that were just like the most like inventive risk uh, uh, taking entrepreneurs ever. It's paradoxical. It is really extraordinary. Uh, the achievement of that generation, the post-war Japan, and maybe those two generations that rebuilt Japan. So, you know, if we see Tokyo in 1945, there's nothing there. And if you see Tokyo in you know, 1985, it's the most spectacular horizon to horizon city that anyone's seen. And to have all that accomplished in 40 years is fairly extraordinary achievement. So they must have been really risk taking and really entrepreneurial. But I can only say like in the, you know, post 2000 era, maybe post bubble era in Japan, which is around 1990, that somewhere maybe third generation or fourth generation became very risk averse, maybe because I'm I don't know, but maybe because the earlier generations were so successful and achieved so much that now maybe later generations are more of a caretaker. You know, if you already have the largest, say, automotive manufacturing in the world, or maybe there's disincentive to make big changes and people say, well, it's not broken. If there's going to be innovation, we'll let somebody else work out the details and then we can enter later. I think that's more of the attitude, but that's a great point, Charles. That's a refinement. I think that's a really good refinement as well. But if we look then, and then we have the next door neighbors, right? We've got like Korea now, thinking about cars, right? Now we've got Kia, uh, Hyundai, Ascendant, right? You've got Samsung is huge. Uh, and then you've also got China, where you've got this crazy entrepreneurship stuff, where it's 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 it's, it's kind of a vicious level of competition that's breeding all these really world class startups. Is Japan in trouble, or you know, do they need to innovate more than they have been innovating? Or, or what do you think about that? They definitely innovate more slowly, and it's certainly less cutthroat. Of course, they're coming from a platform of a very wealthy com- country with tons of IP and technology stock and super educated workforce. So they probably can afford a, a slower pace of innovation, but they do need a little more than what they're doing now. They, I don't think they need to go cutthroat. And um, for example, Japan still has essentially lifetime employment and a lot of stability and predictability of life. I think they could maintain that, but bring a little more competitive edge. And that's probably something they need to do. To their credit, to the credit of Japan, we do see a move into industry 4.0, including 3D printing is, it's really happening now, but certainly slower than we'd see in the US or China. Okay, so what are some encouraging signs and some encouraging developments out of Japan for 3D printing-wise, let's say? All of the big Japanese enterprise manufacturers that you might think of when you think of Japan um, are aggressively moving into additive. They're almost all customers of Brulee Japan, and I'm sure they work with other 3D printer um, 
resellers as well. And they're really looking for ways to not only use 3D printing more in their innovation and iterative processes, but even in manufacturing, especially Jason fixtures and factories and tooling and factories. I don't think there's any discussion yet of any end use parts, but we really see that they see the value and that they're committed to unlocking that value. That's a, you know, we've been doing this in Japan since 2010. That's a relatively new attitude, especially I'd say in, in the post uh, pandemic era since 2020. Do you see a lot more Japanese startup activity? I saw a couple of startups. I saw a large format Japanese printer. I saw a couple of things. Do you see more initiatives as well uh, outside of these, these large uh, kind of corporations? There's definitely um, more of a, startup culture in Japan than I would say 10 years ago. But most of those startups that we see are fintech or AI based. I don't see so much. There are a few, but we don't see so much in industry 4.0, to be honest. They're, they're, but the big companies, the big enterprise companies, the mega companies, they are adopting industry 4.0. Okay, okay. Well, that's encouraging, at least. I mean, the big guys might be slow, and then they might get there. And there's another question. This is kind of left field, but I haven't talked about this a lot with people, because everybody always, in the media now, it's really popular to say, like, oh, 3D printing used to be terrible, or used to be amazing. It's going to be the future. It really disappointed. And now, oh, look at this dog has a new 3D printed leg, right? Um, and uh, <laughs> But but do you believe in... in, in in desktop 3D printing, because I'm thinking about this, like not a lot has changed, but the machines are a lot better now. The $200 machines can do things $2,000 machines can do, used to be able to do. Can, can we maybe make the success this time around or in a couple of years? Do you believe in really this, like, I don't know about everybody having a 3D printer, but at least a huge amount of people having 3D printers. I think that's, it's absolutely the case. And it's for engineers uh, all over the world, what what people in 3D printing forget is that the majority of engineers are not 3D printing engineers. And they're they are engineers in something specific. So, you know, somebody is an engineer of um flight control services at an airline manufacturer. They they don't think about 3D printing, they don't follow the market, they don't they're not following the different competing technologies that we follow. They would just like a tool to help them innovate. And that's a great thing for desktop 3D printing. It may not be a 3D printer in every garage, but it should be a 3D printer for every engineer in the world and probably multiple ones. That kind of, and, and for students and engineering, for engineering students. Then people start to think in those terms um, and think in terms of additive and design in terms of additive. And that follows through to industrial and to manufacturing. And again, you see that in other, in almost every other branch of technology that um, you see, we see it in computing, you see it in mobile phones, that the time that we really got serious about doing things via mobile phone was when a smartphone, when an iPhone really became accessible to a wide range of the population. Now people started to design more sophisticated applications. I think we see it in computing where in the eighties and nineties, when at the point at which every student had a Mac or an x86 PC is a time when people start to think in those terms. And so uh, we, I think we're seeing the same thing in 3d printing. We, we now have a generation of engineers who enter companies in the last five years is the first time we see a generation of engineers who are entering companies, having grown up using 3d printers 
in high school and in college. And so the way they think about innovation, design, manufacturing is really influenced by that. And so that's a great benefit of low cost desktop 3D printing. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we've got a lot of people that are like, that are, that are going to draw to solutions in 3D printing. It, why don't we 3D print that in areas that they're not like really, really familiar with it? And and also, like one thing I want to ask is, again, a, a little bit of a, a, a difference. You guys also have a brulee Korea, right? So we and, have, yeah, go yeah. Uh, No, I'd just like to know a little bit more about that and about the Korean market specifically. So we have brulee Korea. You alluded to Korea earlier. And it's where in the innovation competition spectrum Korea sits right in the middle of Japan and China. It's geographically in the middle, and it's also somewhat in the middle in terms of um, GDP per capita and also in terms of how they think about addressing and, and utilizing new and developing technology. So our Korean customers are more aggressive about building businesses around 3D printing, even end-use parts. So per capita, Korea performs in 3D printing really well. And, you know, the big, the chable in Korea represent a huge portion of the economy, but a chable like Samsung, it's, doesn't, it's not even meaningful to say Samsung because Samsung has so many divisions that do so many things. But within the manufacturing and engineering and design parts of the chable, we do see really aggressive uptake of additive. And that's actually always been the case. They, they've, Korea, since we entered the market 10 years ago, has always been a very aggressive um, adopter of new technology. And Korean universities as well. are it's, The Korean educational market is quite competitive. And universities make a lot of money and they work hard to attract students. And it's quite competitive to draw students. And so Korean universities all have great 3D printing labs uh, if they're trying to attract engineering students. So we see that as well. Okay, that's that's really good to know. I mean, I, th- I think it's interesting because that's also a market that took a while, uh, but now we're well. There was one point when all of a sudden the government in Korea really, really got involved and was trying to stimulate the hell out of it, and then they seem to have not been as into it as they were before. Let's say, you know, that's I think there's always a good kickstart, kind of a top-down simulation, but ultimately the economy and the economic considerations have to drive it, and and if you if we want mass adoption, it has to be sort of economically driven. And we see that happening. Again, Korea is not as aggressive as as the US or even Europe, but relatively aggressive in Asia. I think China China is probably the most uh, aggressive adopter of emerging tech. But outside of China, Korea might be number two. Okay, that's encouraging news for the region, uh, I think, definitely. And so you know, what do you hope to do now? I mean, you've got these like uh, successful companies. Are you trying to do new startups? Are you going to, yeah, what, what, are you, what are you up to? We think that additive is just getting started. Is <laughs> You know, the difference between pre-2020 and post-2020 is instead of us going to customers saying, hey, you should use more 3D printing because here's some ROI and some reasons. We now have customers coming to us saying, it's a strategic imperative of our company to use more 3D printing. Um, Again, part of that was driven by disruptions to global supply chain during COVID. Part of that is driven by concerns about geopolitical stability. But these are initiatives that the world's largest enterprise companies are now on and coming to us and asking to help, asking for our help. That's new. 
that wasn't happening in 2019. And so what's next for me is like, we're going to try to drive growth in these companies a lot in the next uh, coming years. So a little world conquering. Just two little worlds. Three Fair enough. Yeah. Three little worlds. <laughs> All right. Hey, Douglas, thank you so much for being here today. It was uh, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me on, you guys. And uh, Max, thank you for having uh, you here as well. Always. Always a fascinating time. Thank you, George. And thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. You have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.